For those of you who've been here in the last couple weeks, we are working through this summer a series on virtue. And virtue, I think, is one of those like really big words that could mean a lot of different things. So before we get started, I just want to return to the definition Brad has used in the past couple of weeks to kind of center ourselves uh, before we jump in. So here's the definition. Virtue is practicing the habits of heart and life that point towards the true goal of human existence, a fully flourishing life. Again, virtue is practicing the habits of heart and life that point towards the true goal of human existence, a fully flourishing life. So we've been looking and working through a list of those virtues that the early church leader Paul writes about in a letter. It's, a, it's in Galatians 5, if you want to reference it later. Um, but when you read through it, it's a, it's a really cool list of things that you read, and you're like, and I would imagine most of us are like, oh, those are things I would like to describe me, right? Um, so there's, uh, Brad talked about love last week, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Um, I think these are the kinds of things you think about when you think about what it looks like to be flourishing and to be as, as positive and high potential as we can be. Or at least if they're not the kinds of things that you think about for yourself, being loving and joyful and gentle, etc., they're the, probably the things you wish your spouse would be or your neighbor would be or your family would be. So in general, it's a list of very positive things that I think we can all agree on and that we all hope for and that we feel like we need more of these things in the world and we need more people in the world who just naturally live out of these things. Well, this morning, out of the list of things, we're going to be looking at forbearance which I still cannot spell correctly, so do not please ask me. It's in your bulletin if you need it. Spell check is wonderful. So last week, we started with a list of the top 10 pop songs that included love or sad references to love or something, some such. We will not be starting this week with a list of the top 10 pop songs that reference forbearance, because I don't know if there are any. Um, So I figured maybe instead we should just start with a definition, because it's one of those words that's like, oh, that's kind of familiar, but like, what does that actually mean? Uh, And it was actually, it was only halfway through sort of thinking about this and thinking of the ideas here that I realized that my definition that I thought I had in my head was only halfway right. So it could be important to know. Forbearance. It means the same thing as endurance, patience, or long-suffering. So it's the virtue that allows someone to wait and to keep trying in difficult times. So that may not uh, play into pop culture or into music quite as much as some other words on the list as gentleness or as joy, as love. Um, But I actually think that forbearance has started to get a lot of attention in modern psychology. And so we're going to look at a couple of things that might help us think through the relevance of forbearance in our world. And the first that uh, came to mind for me was something called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, which I imagine many of you have heard of. And if you haven't, it's much more fun to watch than to describe. And so we're going to watch a quick example of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment or something similar.
just a little while, okay? But you can eat now if you want to, but if you want to. The child, so the child's given the option. You have one marshmallow on this plate in front of you. If you wait until I get back, you can have two marshmallows instead, right? So it's a measurement of um, delayed gratification, I think was their official word. And so uh, research, so the Stanford experiment itself was slightly more complex than this, as, as you can imagine. Um, but the research who did it uh, discovered over time that children who were better at delayed gratification turned out to have better life outcomes which they measured by really important things like higher SAT scores and other items. Um, so, of course, there's you know, people who see both sides of the experiment, etc. But it's gotten a lot of attention and continues to be something that researchers look at. More recently, a professor at Penn, who some of you might have heard of, Angela Duckworth, has built her entire career around studying what she calls grit. So she's famous. She has a TED Talk, right? That's like the epitome of being famous. She has a book. She actually won a MacArthur Genius Grant, so she is actually famous. Um, her work has been highly influential in education policy, and she has two main ideas. Grit predicts success better than IQ or talent, and secondly, grit can be learned. So in the psychological definition, grit is a combination of passion, quote, stick to itness, because apparently you can use those kinds of words in a psychological definition, and perseverance. So delayed gratification, perseverance, grit, resilience, passion, endurance, all of those things are what forbearance is. And I think all of, and the recent studies um, give us, there's a lot of attention to how forbearance might make us more successful, make us flourish, make us reach our true potential. Uh, and so, so I like to think about it from a different direction. Here's why I think this is so critical. And as I looked back on why I think and why I resonate with the idea of forbearance, um, it's not because of the research, um, but it's because of things that come up in life where you see an example of it and you think, oh, I, I need some forbearance right now. So for instance, think about a movie that you've seen recently or a book that you've read where a group of people challenge a significant social issue and are actually successful. So Selma, which came out last year, I think is a great example. You watch something like that, and it inspires you. You want to be that kind of part of a, that kind of a movement. Like, so you, you watch Selma, and you think, like, where's a bridge that we can go march over and actually make a difference and have done something significant? So Sel Selma is a slightly fictionalized version of some of Martin Luther King's work. When I was in college, Boycott had just come out, which is the same basic idea. It's just around the Montgomery bus boycott instead of the march across the bridge, right? So I watched the movie Boycott with a bunch of friends. We were all really inspired, and a group of two or three of us who lived in the same dorm together were walking back to our dorm. It's about a 10-minute walk from where we watched the movie back to our dorm. And over the course of that 10 minutes, we went from being really inspired and feeling like this is just such amazing work. How can we be a part of something like this? to being somewhere between confused and I think, not quite discouraged, but like disheartened. So you, you think about the Montgomery bus boycott, it's an amazing moment in history. Obviously, it probably wasn't as simple to actually do as the movie portrayed, no doubt. But wow, as we walked across, you know, 10 minutes from, to our dorm, our country needs some moments like that one. And they are so few and so far between. And that's what kind of dampened our inspiration. Why are those moments like a March on Selma or a Montgomery bus boycott. Why are they so few and so far between? Why are there so few leaders like Martin Luther King in the world? So we have uh, social issues that face us in our time that when history looks back on us, I don't think they're going to seem any smaller, any less significant, any less unjust uh, than segregation or slavery did in their time as we look back on them. And so that brings us to that question, where is our moment? Where is our leadership? How can we see a movement, be a part of a movement, or potentially even contribute to leading a movement that has that kind of watershed moment? 
the moment that sort of like restructures how everybody thinks about something and everyone acts differently that brings justice and equality and equal opportunity so that, ever, so that humans can flourish. That's where we ended our conversation in our 10-minute walk back to our dorm. Um, and so I, I was thinking about this and actually wrote most of this uh, last Monday. And then after the events of this past week, how much more true uh, is, 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 this, is this now to think about how much we need moments like this. So in, in the 10 years uh, since Boycott came out and since I was in college, I think I've seen a lot of, a lot of folks working on those types of issues. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of, of those kinds of things that I've tried to be involved in. And I, 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 what, what I've experienced is that it's easier to veer between idealism on one side and cynicism on the other than to be the kind of flourishing, impactful person that I think we want to be. So we, we, we really want to see those kinds of world-changing movements. We really want to see some significant healing. We want to be a part of leading it. And yet the, the challenging parts, the hard parts, the bad parts of the world keep getting in our way and making it really hard to do those kinds of things. So let me give you an example of what I mean. In the spring of 2010, I was working for a tutoring and academic support program, uh, leading a bunch of folks mostly just out of college at, a, at West Philadelphia High School. Uh, so down the block from here, at, at that point, they were in the old building over on Walnut that's being converted into condos. So at the time, they had made a lot of progress recently up until then, um, but a lot of progress probably only measured because the baseline was so incredibly low. Three years before I was there, so that's like 2007-ish, students were literally frequently setting fires in the hallways. So that was kind of the devolution and the low at which the, the school climate had reached. So the climate had significantly improved in the couple of years between then and when I was there in 2010. There was a new principal. She'd been there, I think, for two years, three years maybe when I got there. She was a force to be reckoned with, mostly in a positive way, almost entirely in a positive way. And um, the district at the time decided to make the school a turnaround school. So therefore, half the staff would be asked to leave. New staff could come in. The principal may or may not be retained. There were all these questions that came with it. And the school would then be turned over to either a charter school or something similar that would operate it and that would turn it around and make it a better place. So I ended up uh, serving on the school advisory council that spring. That was a group that was supposed to be mostly parents. Obviously, I was not a parent. Um, and we were supposed to discuss the four applicants, vet them in some way, and make a decision, make, uh, give an, uh, a clear decision and a request to the school district about which of the four providers we thought would be best to, to address the challenges at West Philadelphia High School. Of those four providers, only one had experience with urban high school turnarounds. There was one more that actually had experience with high schools. The other two had literally no experience working with high school students as, as a turnaround charter school provider. So we had lots and lots of meetings. Uh, it's um, really challenging to get a group of mostly parents and lots of other people to all get on the same page and really, really under, get on the same page about where things currently are, much less where they could be and who would be best to get us there. But we worked through this really significant progress. We, uh, there were consultants hired and paid to help us work through this process, right? A lot of people in the group traveled to Baltimore to see an example of what one of the organizations had done and try to see how that would fit with what we wanted to see at the school. It was really challenging, but we thought it was one of those watershed moments. We came to a decision that we thought would be hard and, and not, not potentially ideal, but the best available option, and then we thought it would be really good. And so we show up to our next meeting after having made that decision and done our official vote. And instead of going to the school library where we met every time, we were uh, grabbed at the entrance and told literally to get on a school bus. 
we had been summoned to go meet with the superintendent. So we get on the school bus, we go down to 440 North Broad where the school district office is. We get in this meeting room with the superintendent and some of her staff. And the few people, turns out, that were on that council who, um, who maybe had voted in agreement but weren't quite as in agreement inside or it wasn't quite unanimous, they, see, they turned out to have connections to the SRC, which is the, uh, the sort of the... Uh, should be the school board, but it's political and replaced by the state and blah, blah, blah. So they asked the, the school board, more or less, right? So they had connections to the school board. They had connections to our local city council representative for West Philadelphia, who remained nameless. Um, they had connections to the teachers' union. The head of the teachers' union is, at the time, actually still, is an alumni of West Philly High. So um, my point is not to lay blame in any of those three particular institutions or any of the groups that were involved. Uh, but the next year, let's just say the school went through four principals in, in about 11 months. And there went our watershed moment. There went our difficult process with this great opportunity just, just gone in the political challenges of trying to make a decision like that. It was the kind of moment that makes you want to pull out your hair after you finished like, bashing your head into the wall. It was just so frustrating. And especially to be there the next year and try to work with four different principals. It's, how are you going to be... I mean, how could you be successful in any job with four different bosses in one year, much less in a school setting uh, with four different principals? So what, what it made me think of as, as an image to kind of capture the frustration is one of those, there's these toys that I haven't seen one in years, but it's a, a toy that kids have that has like two strings and you pull the two strings in opposite directions and it's a top that just spins, right? So in one string, you've got idealism. You've got this incredible vision of what things could be, how the world could be better, and you pull really hard. And on the other side, you've got cynicism, you've got reality. You've got all the challenges of actually making anything like this happen and you pull really hard. Both of those forces pull us really hard. And so I, I feel like we either end up spinning in circles because you can't quite figure out the solution between those two things, or we just end up unraveling. So how can we be a part of seeing a better world come? And I think one of the key answers is this idea of forbearance, this virtue of patience or long-suffering. It's a critical virtue to get to the place to see the kind of change that I think we long for. So this morning, we're going to look at another story that's actually been made into an inspirational movie, uh, somewhat less recently in the late 90s. Anyone remember The Prince of Egypt? It's about Moses. In case you haven't seen the movie, we're not going to watch it this morning, um, or read the Bible story recently, I'll bring us briefly up to date. So the Israelite people, the Hebrews, uh, I'll probably use both words interchangeably, but same group of people, they're... They came to Egypt a couple hundred years before this, and they ended up being enslaved at this time. And so the Egyptians are the people in power, they're the majority, and they've taken the Hebrews and put them in forced labor. And God sends Moses to literally lead them out of slavery into a new land. So it would actually be hard to overstate how epic, how heroic the story is. It's, it's that kind of world-changing social justice movement. It's no less inspirational than the civil rights movement or anything else we can think of. Like, Moses literally led a people group out of slavery. Like, top that, right? Who, who's going to ever do anything like that? So I'm sure there's lots, there's an amazing, there's, there's a long story there. There's a lot to learn, I think, and if you've um, read the story or kind of remember any of it, um, there's these amazing moments of, like, the burning bush where Moses is in the desert and God speaks to him out of a bush that is burning but is not consumed. And that's sort of the turning point where he gets sent on this journey and goes back and, and does all these amazing things. And the Moses I want to look at this morning is the Moses before the burning bush. How did Moses become the kind of human who could lead an entire people group out of slavery? So we're going to look at that piece of the story. So at this point, um, before what we're going to look at, the Egyptian rulers have decreed that all boys born to the Hebrew people must be killed 
they must be thrown in the river Nile because they feel threatened by, by the Israelites, by the Hebrews. And so Moses, so Moses is born, and his parents put him in a basket in the river, which I never thought about this, but it was like, there's just this kind of beautiful like, subterfuge to it. Like, you told us to throw him in the river. We threw him in the river. You didn't say don't put him in a basket. I, I'm, did we misunderstand your instructions? We sealed the basket, and we put him in the river. So there you go, right? Um, so, so the daughter of Pharaoh happens to be... Pharaoh is the fancy title for Egypt's king. So the daughter of Egypt's king happens to find Moses. I mean, there's all this kind of miraculous subtext here. Finds Moses, decides to raise Moses as her own child, and it's actually her who gives him the name Moses, which I think is really interesting and, and will become more interesting as we get into it. So we're going to start there and uh, read the scripture that you have in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen behind us. kind of picks up at, at the end of Moses' childhood. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you think of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls turned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with them, with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And if you keep reading in the next couple of sentences, you run into the burning bush and, and so forth. So my first observation from this is, is really quite simple. Moses waits a long time before the burning bush moment. And it's not recorded here, but actually in Acts, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, someone uses the story of Moses as a sermon illustration and gives us more details. And we learn from that that Moses was 40 years old when he fled Egypt. And then he was 80 when the burning bush occurred. And he lived to be 120. So make what you will of the numbers. Um, the, I think it's, it's fair to take away from this. He was two-thirds of the way through his life before the burning bush moment. He spent a third of his life as an alien in the desert watching sheep. He waits for a very long time. As he waits, he's not the only one waiting. The Hebrews, the, the whole people group, they're waiting. And their situation gets worse and worse and worse. The Egyptians add oppression upon oppression upon oppression. Forced labor, killing all the boy children, making the forced labor harder just to keep them more oppressed. As it says out in the last few verses, 
the Israelites groaned under their slavery, and they cried out. And out of their slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God also, it appears, is waiting. And you might have noticed as we read through this, or you will now, (laughs) that God isn't mentioned until the last few verses. We'll talk in a minute, perhaps, about some of the things that God was doing or where under the surface things might have been happening during this long wait. But for now, I just want to point this out because I think it's very similar to what we often feel when we look at the social change that we seek or when we even look back at the events of the last few days and the last few weeks. It can be hard to see where God is, to see what kind of action God is taking. And so the people are called to wait, the long-suffering that they're called to, the waiting and the long-suffering that Moses ends up in. These are reflections of the long-suffering and the waiting of God. And that is forbearance. What I think is really interesting here is that it's not presented as an intentional choice or a thing to seek out. It's presented more as an inescapable reality. Moses does not wake up in Egypt one morning and say, I want to be a virtuous person. Let me make small choices to be better at forbearance so that when the time comes, I will have mastered forbearance. He wakes up in the desert and the time is there. Let me put that in a slightly different way because I don't want to suggest that we should avoid forbearance until it like pops up in our face. Um, I think maybe perhaps the difference between forbearance and love, which we looked at last week, or joy, which we'll look at in one of the coming weeks, you might want to go looking for opportunities to practice love or joy or gentleness or kindness. I don't think we need to go looking for opportunities to practice forbearance. Those opportunities will find us. The world has plenty of trouble that provides more than enough opportunity for us to experience and practice our forbearance. What we need to do is not look for those opportunities, but respond when they come in small ways that help us build the kind of long-suffering, the kind of patience, the kind of endurance that we need. If we don't build that kind of forbearance, then I think we end up either becoming cynical, unable to see hope when it arrives 40 years later in a burning bush, or we become idealistic, in some very simplistic sense, deciding perhaps that being a shepherd in the desert really is what we were called to in the first place, and we settle for one of those two. So Moses waits in the desert. The Hebrews, the people group, groan in their slavery. Like them, we are called to remember in those kinds of moments that God also waits and to model our long-suffering, our waiting on God. So how should we respond in times like that? My first point, we should wait as God waits. So what does that look like? After the year that, the, uh, that West Philadelphia High School had four principals, I ended up moving to a different position in the organization I was working for, and then a year or two later to a new organization. There are others actually in our congregation, there are others in this room probably, who are far more involved and know a lot more about what's happening at West, Phil- West Philadelphia High School uh, than I do right now. And um, my point though, to, to be honest, it's, it's not clear to me how f- five years later, six years later, it's not clear to me if education, if education in Philadelphia if urgent ur- urban education is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's, 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 not, it's not always clear if that's what I'm called to, like there, like there was a burning bush and I am now past that, doing what I have been called to do, or if I have just ended up there in the way that you end up uh, watching sheep in a desert, because sometimes it feels like that also, right? If you're in education in a city like Philadelphia or many other issues, I'm sure, you, you feel like every year you may, maybe you have a new crop of sheep, but you have the same desert, there are no rivers, there are no rain, new rainstorms, there's no like magic oasis that you've stumbled upon. You're just watching sheep in the desert. 
hoping that a burning bush is around the next corner. And I think um, there, there are days and weeks where in, I'm you know, still working in Education Philly in a nonprofit, and there are just days that just feel like that, where it just, it just uh, feels like you're watching sheep in the desert. So what it means then to me to wait as God waits is, is a couple of potential things. One, to remember when I'm waiting that God is also waiting. It's easy, it's normal, I think, to become cynical, to become worn out. But God promises a better future, a just kingdom, a peaceable realm. And you hear Jesus use a lot of that language. Some days I wait by believing that promise, by hoping for it, by seeing the possibility of it. Some days I wait by remembering that God also waits, that even when I can't see that promise or it doesn't seem real, that I'm not waiting alone, that God is waiting also. And that if a just and loving God can wait for whatever reason, I can also wait. Other days, I can't see the promise, and stuff is messy and complicated and thorny, and it doesn't feel encouraging. Like, if God is waiting, that's great, but that just seems really more frustrating than encouraging. And in those moments, I wait in the way that the Israelites waited, with a groan or a cry for help that I hope somehow will come before God. I think it's really interesting to notice in the specific language there, it doesn't say that the, that the Israelites sat down and prayed you know, with, with a great spiritual fervor. It just says that they cried out for help and that God heard them. So waiting as God waits, I think, is, is to wait with God, to wait with God's example, to wait with God's promise, or perhaps to wait with a groan towards God. So wait with God, I think, is how we practice waiting as God waits. The second observation, which is going to lead us to our second point, is that Moses, in what we read here, is a person in crisis. If you didn't notice, Moses has some really significant issues with his identity. Is he an Egyptian or a Hebrew? So he was born a Hebrew. He was born an oppressed slave. But he was rescued by the mercy of Pharaoh's daughter, which means that he was one of the only Hebrew men his age, right? So as he looks around, everybody else knows that something weird happened because he's the only one his age. He seems to have rarely seen the actual oppression, the beatings that his people received. He grew up privileged and sheltered in the palace. He runs away, and when the rescued daughters are asked who saved them, they say an Egyptian, not a Hebrew, Right? So he, he looks like an Egyptian. He acts like an he, he appears to be an Egyptian. He names his first son Gershom because it sounds like the Hebrew word for foreigner. And he says, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. He's an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. And he's a refugee. Moses has a very complex identity. And at, at, when I think we, as we start this, a complex identity that he hasn't quite figured out how to make peace with. He also has deep issues with his calling. So somehow he just seems to know that he's supposed to be rescuing people. It's like innate. When something comes up and there's a moment, he just knows, I have to do something. I'm supposed to rescue these people. So he, uh, so he sees the oppression and the slave master beating the slave firsthand, and he kills the slave master and rescues the slave, not recommending this course of action. His first act in seeing the shepherds mistreat the women trying to water their flocks, he drives them away. Like, single-handedly, he drives away an entire group of shepherds to rescue the women, and then he waters their flocks. Neither of these seem to be like, quite the type of rescue that he should be doing. Right? They're not successful in quite the way that you would want. They're, they're, certainly, they're not clean or um, uh, ethical in some way. Right? So, so it's not like he, he hasn't gotten it right, but he knows he should be doing it in some way. Maybe he knows it vaguely, but it's, just, it's something that's in him that he knows that he needs to be rescuing people. 
And that's what he's supposed to do. He just doesn't know how to do it clearly. And so he has issues with his calling. And then the third part of his crisis, I would think it's fair to say at this point that he has some issues with his temperament. He's like really, really impulsive. So he sees oppression and he kills the person. And then he realizes he should run away. And so he runs as far as he can into the middle of the desert. He's too bold. He acts too quickly. Then he goes all the way to the other side, terrified, and he flees. And he's stuck in a foreign land and he sits down at a well. Like, what else are you going to do? He just kind of reached the end of his rope. And in that, I think Moses is much like us. He's got a lot to work through. The seeds of his future are there. So he will actually need each of these crises. But he can't see that yet. And that's my point. His three crises are not, in fact, a sign that he's been derailed, that he's a disaster. They are actually a part of his process. All of these things are a part of him. He is, in fact, an Israelite, an oppressed people, a part of an oppressed people group. He is, in fact, an Egyptian. He is actually a refugee. He is bold, and he is afraid. He should be a rescuer of a whole people. His crisis is not because he has something that he needs to abandon. It's not because there's some part of him that he needs to, like, expunge out of himself. He just needs the time and the work of God to get all those parts of himself into balance. And so that's my second point. Crisis may not mean that we have lost our way. It may not mean we're stuck as a shepherd in the desert forever. It may not mean that we have to get rid of some part of our identity or impulse of our calling. Something may yet come of it. Wait to see God's work in the crisis. So for example, um, this this will come back, so stick with it. Um, For example, during my last summer in college, I had an opportunity to live in an urban neighborhood, which for me was the first time, and to work with a group of folks that were trying to make the neighborhood better. It was a really unique combination. Um, So there was a historic church congregation that was uh, fading. So it was a mainline congregation. They they literally hadn't had new members in like decades. And so they were literally like growing old and fading. There were like 10 of them left. Um, And in their fading though, they they had a building and they were in this community that they cared about. And so somehow they managed to bring together two other young socially active congregations that cared about that community. One that was almost entirely African-American and one that was almost entirely white. And so, they, so all three of those churches merged into one church, which was really unique and amazing. And they were doing some great things in the community for kids and single mothers and others. And I was there with a group of six college interns just like along for the ride to help out for the summer, which was awesome. So we spent, as you could imagine, a lot of time that summer discussing identity, especially for those of us who, like me, were new to living in an urban neighborhood and being a part of something like this. In the same way that Moses might have wrestled with privilege as someone who grew up in the palace and then observed what was happening to his people. So we we had experiences that summer that might have mirrored his first view of oppression. We did not follow up in the same way that he did. Um, So like, for instance, we heard from, so there was this street that was becoming the kind of new up-and-coming hip arts district, and it was, there was energy, and there were people who cared about it, and there was um, new businesses there, and there was great things about it. But at the same time, there were people that we knew who we like, sat next to at church every weekend who were losing their apartments because the rent was increasing because of gentrification because of the artist street, right? So you wrestle with things like that. It uh, forced us to, to, to question a lot of our past assumptions. One of the leaders of the internship said over and over, well, he, so he was a baseball fan, and he said over and over again, stay in the game. What he meant by that was keep engaging with God. Our job that summer, as, as we reflected on ourselves, was not to figure things out, to end up with a clear answer, to know who we were or who we could be. Our job was to keep engaging while God worked things out. So that was in the summer of 2003. 
It's been 13 years since then. Some of the questions that really came to a point that summer are questions that I continue to ask and with his advice that I continue to wrestle with. So I, I think we, and I hesitate to bring this up because there's no way to bring this up and not talk about it for more than 30 seconds, but that's what we're going to do, so make what you will, right? But to be a white male or a white straight Protestant male, you have a lot of societal privilege. Just, just take that for what it is or ignore it or whatever you need to do. Um, it's hard to bring up without an hour to talk about it, you, but you think about all this in a summer like that, and you keep entering those kinds of moments. How does, so this is, this is the question that I wrestle with. How does someone like me, who, who could be a leader but who, who is a part of a people group that has privilege. And how do you lead appropriately in the midst of that? Should I either just not lead and empower others to lead to kind of get rid of some of those privilege and power dynamics? Or is there an appropriate way to... What, what, is, what is the calling and what is tending sheep in the desert? Should I abandon leadership because, because so many white men have led in so many bad ways? And there's so many structures that are just not as they should be in the world, referenced the last week. Or should, what, what do people of privilege do? How, how, so this is a question that I wrestle with. It is not a question that was answered in those eight weeks that I spent in Portland, you know, 13 years ago. It's not a question that has an answer now. So staying in the game means stop trying to answer that question. Like, there's not going to be a clear moment where there's a resolution. And instead, seek God's voice time after time in each situation where that question comes up. And so that question, as you can imagine, originally feels like a crisis. Like, what is my identity? What is my calling? Now I would say that question is something more of like a familiar friend. It's uh, someone I talk to frequently. It's not cynical. It's not idealistic to ask it over and over and over. It's what's actually needed in reality. And practicing forbearance means responding as often as possible to that question, coming back to the question over and over and over again, even though there is no final answer. So that's our second observation. Wait to see God's work in the crisis Stay in the game. And that brings us to our third observation and, and our kind of summary as we close. When the time comes, everyone is actually ready, more or less. So the burning bush is the next thing on the page if you keep reading the story. And, um, and a few important things happen to get everyone to the place where this story turns, where kind of the pebble that starts rolling that causes an avalanche, or um, I realize some of those like, metaphors are just like, really depressing, like who wants to cause an avalanche, right? So the seed sprouts, and it makes a giant, beautiful tree, right? Um, so while, while Moses has been waiting in the desert, and the people have been waiting, they are finally now actually ready to leave. And if you keep reading the story, you'll realize that that's, that's really a significant process that needed to happen. And they're actually fickle about this. They do leave, and they get in the desert and on their way, and they're afraid, and they leave, and they want to go back, and their situation becomes desperate enough that they grow un- groan under it, and they cry out to God, and they leave, but they- then they want to go back. And so they're ready. They're not quite, they're not fully, but they're ready. Moses also becomes ready. So later on in the story, it notes that he has a second son during this time, and he names that second son Eleazar, which means God is my helper, because he recognizes, and it explains this, he recognizes that God saved him from Pharaoh. And I I mentioned that to say Moses has started over his 40 years in the desert tending sheep to recognize God's work and God's presence in his crisis, which is some progress from where he started. As is often the case, I think when you look back on those things, you can see how they fit together in a way that you can't see in the middle of them. And most of you have probably been catching pieces of this already. So when you look back at the story of Exodus you would recognize how important it is to have a leader of the Exodus who could, who could be a leader in the palace, who could speak, who, who knows how to work around someone like Pharaoh. Like, you need someone who can speak to Pharaoh. You also need someone who can lead appropriately, 
in the context of like the of whatever the village is that the Hebrews live in, who knows their language, who understands their culture. And ironically, you're going to very quickly need someone who actually knows how to live in the desert because you're about to take all the people out into the desert for actually 40 years. That's where he spends his last 40 years between 80 and 120. So if, if you or I were responsible for finding this leader, right, we're looking for someone who is probably of, of Hebrew descent, but who speaks the language of Pharaoh, someone who knows what to do when they get into the desert with a whole bunch of people, someone who's uniquely bicultural, who probably speaks multiple languages. Where do you find someone like that? Well, you find Moses. Like, who else could possibly have fit what was needed for what Moses needed to do? It was, it's like as if he was born, rescued, parented by Pharaoh's daughter, kicked out of Egypt into the desert just to have the perfect resume for the job that God needed accomplished. Who knows what kind of current challenge that we're dealing with today will become the kind of thing that gives us just the experience that we need when the time comes. Also have to mention that Moses did not exactly jump at the chance to go back into Egypt and rescue the people. And so maybe, maybe there's some maturity to that. Um, but if you read the burning bush story that comes next, you'll see that God gets a little bit frustrated with Moses. Um, and, I, and I point that out to, to point out a key difference. Moses is ready, but, he, but being ready is different than feeling ready or than knowing you are ready. The people are ready. They have their hesitations even as they go. Moses is ready. He has his doubts. He doesn't necessarily believe that he's ready, but he is actually ready. And God is ready. God does not have doubts and does not hesitate. And when he is ready, God does not delay. So the focus of our time this morning is on forbearance. Wait as God waits. Wait to see God's work in the crisis. The fruit, the virtue of forbearance, though, comes to life when God moves. And so that's our third point. Wait until God moves. Not necessarily until you feel ready. So to summarize, how does Moses become the kind of human who can lead an entire people group out of slavery? He learns to wait in the way that God waits with the image of God as a God who waits in the sight of God with the promises of God. He chooses to work through to respond to, to keep moving through all the different crises that shape him. And then when God says that it's time to go and that the moment is here, he goes. So I want to close with a few lines from a prayer of Moses that is recorded in the 90th Psalm. Who knew that Moses wrote a psalm? Moses wrote a psalm in the 90th Psalm. It's a great, a great kind of fitting reflection end to this. Um, I'm going to read the first two verses and the last verse and then pray them over us and I'll also leave us some silence to kind of reflect on the words as, as we just relax and sit and think through them. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, help us to see you wherever we are between everlasting and everlasting. Help us to see that you are with us. You have been with all generations. May we wait with you in our sight. Lord, be our dwelling place. Provide us the security and the safety that we need, the nourishment and encouragement to continue to engage with you, to dwell with you. May your favor rest upon us as we wait.
And Lord, will you establish the work of our hands? May what we work on every day last. May it build, may it grow, and become something good, something of worth for our world. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.